don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, gender performativity in the history of suburban architecture with Olivia Ann. Today, my guest is uh, Olivia Han, uh, who's an interdisciplinary designer who focuses on uh, architecture and gender. Uh, and she does so through design, performance, drawing, video, and even uh, writing poetry. Um, and uh, today, we're going to speak about uh, uh, how the American suburbia is built on uh, gendered logic and uh, where the notion of domesticity um, stands in that. Uh, so that should be very, a very interesting conversation. Uh, hello, Olivia. Hi, Leopold. Uh, uh, so we, we're going to start maybe by this uh, neologism that you created, uh, especially for this research uh, that you, you've been doing uh, for... Uh, uh, two years now, is that right? Two years, yeah. About. Uh, yeah, uh, and you created this. Um, you created this uh, neologism uh, of n-gendered uh, n with a slash and then gender. Can you can you maybe start by explaining us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I was thinking of the engendered space as a word that could create more possibility in understanding how architecture creates certain boundaries and limitations for the subject that exists within it. Um, architecture can dictate how a subject may perform within it as much as a subject can create a space around it in its performance and the perf performativity of the body. Um, you can think of this in ways that if you're in an institution, how you yourself as a student may react in a classroom. Um, if you're a professor and you have certain dominance within that same classroom, behind a desk or at a podium, um, translating this same analogy to domestic space, I wanted to look at how the word engendered may be challenged by putting this backslash in between N and gendered and how N can be the formulation of a condition or subject and the gendered in classifying male or female subjects can apply to how a space in architecture or around a body can be formulated, questioned, disrupted and constantly changing or fluid. Um, this moved me to look at certain architectures of post-World War II domesticity. I was looking through suburban houses in Levittown, New York that followed the Interstate Highway Act of large suburban sprawl and seeing how domestic structures helped create these archetypes of subjects and their perform and their performativity 
as they're engendered by that architecture. Mm -hmm. I think we we, we can get right to this topic in in a minute, but uh, so if I may introduce your research uh, specifically about suburbia in in this way, I would say that it uh, I, that's something I'm I'm very very interesting interested sorry, because um, we have an official history of suburbia in in the United States, which yes. is uh, to put it simply, it's um, it's uh, the the materialization of the American dream of uh, the 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 ability to be the owner of your own house. Uh, to this uh, this uh, ma- making making a house for uh, ideally making a house for each uh, citizen and and therefore sp- spatially ter- in terms of territory it inv- it involves a kind of uh, urban urban spreading that that we know. However, there are um, there are a series of uh, what I would call maybe a counter histories uh, of of how this suburbia was created, uh, which I think are, are fascinating, and, and yours is one of them. Uh, if, I, if I may introduce uh, three others that, I, that I've been reading through uh, uh, people like Noam Chomsky or uh, Mike Davis or uh, Peter Allison, um, Peter Gallison, sorry. Um, uh, there's the idea that um, spreading territory in such a way would, uh, one, uh, be able to, uh, being able to um, to spread resources and population on uh, in a time of cold war when uh, the atomic risk was uh, was uh, um, at least the atomic paranoia was very high uh, and so spreading resources like that would, would make it a little bit uh, would make it more difficult to uh, touch uh, crucial nodes uh, of population of resources to um, would it, it was also part of um, of a capitalist uh, will of um, um, for forcing the population to to be extremely dependent on the car industry and there's this example of their of their what has been recognized as a, as a conspiracy of uh, general Motors and uh, California all standard that uh, bought every uh, trolley buses of the country to destroy them so that people would use cars um and uh and that was instead of being uh, instead of being suppressed by the the government it was actually reinforced by the 1956 highway act of eisenhower that you've been you've been studying right. mm-hmm. and and maybe a third a third uh, counter history of suburbia was also a way to kill public space at least a pedestrian public space where um in in as a kind of a mediterranean par- paradigm let's say uh, were were uh, that this public space where revolts and revolutions were happening. Uh, obviously, this is things are not happening the same way it, when you have a, a city looking like a suburbia. So, those are three counter histories that do not contradict each other. That do not even contradict the official one, uh, but that creates a complexity in how things are how things have been have been built and and yours is is one more that uh, we're going to talk about today uh, and I'm sorry for this long introduction but um, uh, if if I were to maybe uh, summarize your hypothesis uh, for that matter it would be that suburbia was created to 
uh, recreate the female gender that after the war uh, was necessary since, uh, since uh, many, many women during the war were actually the workforce of the country. Is that, did I get this right? I could say it, it may be recontextualizing ways in which gender could be reappropriated or made most productive during this historical timeline you summarized just now. Um, I think in many ways, those three different histories you had laid out for us so well <laughs> is that there, it's a foundation in which the collective narrative of American suburban collect, like domesticity is constantly revisited. And in many ways, that narrative has created assumptions and symptomatic appropriations of how subjects in domesticity may act or perform. In many, in many ways, I believe that the suburban single-family home has been a domain for which the nuclear family, which was another concept that was developed during that time, to be the, mo the ultimate productive family societal structure that could exist only and within that architectural archetype mm -hmm. of domesticity. So you have this very specific topology of domestic architecture, this house that could contain a mother figure, a father figure, and children, and each of those subjects and in their engendering of that domestic space carry out their own domains um, and carry out their own performatives that uphold that structure and then within that process it includes and excludes certain subjects from existing within that architecture and it also begins to commodify that architecture and, and give it power for those subjects to exist within it and takes away power from the subjects that cannot fit within it. Um, I was looking through a lot of advertisements of the time. Hmm. Because that, that involves an imaginary that goes with it, right? So the, uh, I think what, you, what you're imaginary. about to describe is, is what you, the way you explained to me your research to, to begin with, which was through those ads back in the 50s, I believe, that uh, were specifically addressed to, to women to, uh, to sell... The, to sell the, the houses, house. yes. So can can you tell us? In about many, it? there is um, there's a series of advertisements in in the late fifties, after Levittown was actually developed mm -hmm. that catered. Levittown being, I'm I'm so sorry, but Levittown just to explain to people who are not necessarily living in the U.S. is the archetype of of the suburban massive suburban sprawl in, uh, in, in Long central Island. Long Island basically yeah. okay. yes. I'm sorry go, go ahead <laughs> <laughs> yes um, it was one of the largest master plan projects that occurred in conjunction with the Interstate Highway Act at the time in America and in advertising for Levittown it was mostly trying to facilitate the troops that were coming home trying to return to this life of normalcy this very regulated, normative, re repetitive architecture that could create these communities that could reimagine this family domestic lifestyle. Mm. Um, in many ways, I felt that 
the Interstate Highway Act and these suburban sprawls could, in a sense, use that power to create this kind of architecture to place these subjects in their place in domesticity. <laughs> yeah, because we, we're, both, we're both architects and we, because of the way we, we work uh, in architecture, we, we are convinced of the, of the parallels that exist between an architecture and a way of life, but actually this, this parallel might not be necessarily evident for, for everyone. So I, th- I think what, what, what you're saying is that the, the normative architecture you're describing corresponds to a normative way of life as well. It, Yes. Yes. So I think that the word normative really helped me go to the next point of how the single family home is facilitating a normative family structure and subjects within it. And this is achieved through creating spaces within the single family home that become domains to each of the subjects. Um, You can have the kitchen, which may be the female domain of the mother, to take care of the children. You have the bedroom that is the private domain of the heads of the household, the mother and the father. You have the main living space, which is basically a public space that accepts those from the outside to create this facade of a very constructed family structure. But I think it's trying to understand where these subjects have reign over these spaces within the home where you can question its legitimacy or question how far the, the normativity of the performativity of the subjects in each of these spaces within the home may be broken or challenged or how far those spaces can actually have power over the subjects. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, su- I suppose for the performativity to work, you need um, each of those rooms that you just talked about to be recognized as such, right? We, we know what a kitchen looks like. We know what a bedroom looks like. We know what a bathroom looks like. And... Uh, and if I go back to when when you first explained to me your research a few a few weeks ago, um, I was thinking immediately of those uh, of those uh, kitchens that's been uh, that's been built around uh, uh, a kind of standardized uh, woman a female body for 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 it to be as efficient as possible. When you say it like that, you would assume that it's the architecture that's built around the body. I just said. The kitchen is built around the fem- female body, but however, the fact of saying female and the fact of saying standardized female body shows where where actually it, the, the the reverse might be more true than this assumption, which is to say that it might be more because the kitchen is built that way that this performativity will actually occur. If architecture anticipates the gesture you as a body will do. Uh, uh, then you are more likely to actually enact those gestures, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I, yes, that's a great point. The fact that the architecture is created around the body for a specific type of body, mm-hmm. the body in and of itself will be more likely to follow suit of what the, archite- what the architecture is dictating mm-hmm. to it. 
I always compare it to the little sup- uh, I don't know how to call that in English the little support of a of a bonsai tree you know like this the it's it's leading it's leading the way the bonsai is going to grow somehow all architecture is all architecture that's been anticipating a normative body is doing that to every non-normative body it's kind of forcing physically this body to 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 follow this this path and this kind of behavior and which which is this performativity at the end of the day yeah i think all of the subjects will try to navigate inside of inside of this this architecture it may it may be a, a navigation and maybe a negotiation between subject and space or maybe complete resistance in a, in a lot of ways that's one of the narratives that i've been looking at in my research an under an underlying narrative that that underwrites the collective narrative of suburbia this these moments of resistance of the subjects in the architecture that binds them to perform in those ways. I think that this suburban architecture created some kind of deployment of power over the subjects in the sense that how can the suburban housewife reign over her domestic domain at home while she is carrying out the daily chores of the day to take care of this this space of hers mm-hmm. and how that space becomes her space until the husband comes home and the the roles are reversed in some way how does the suburban house have many facades within it based on who is occupying any which room of the house and i think those rooms can become motifs in understanding domesticity from how certain genders construct that narrative, how certain gender archetypes within domesticity are constantly um, being revisited as motifs to domesticity and even being re-envisioned today. Ways that heteronormative domesticity is a motif that brings nostalgia how how heteronormative domesticity can be nostalgic nostalgic of a of a time that would be before the war or nostalgic of a time that does not even exist or because no. we, we you, you you just say when when the husband goes comes home which was an interesting uh, uh, sentence because it's it's so obvious but at the same time we did not even we did not even say that which is that the woman body where the woman we're talking about is is obviously the the housewife so the house wife to two very uh, characteristic uh, terms right and it's it's in the context of post-war it's uh, it's a way to take those female bodies that used to be working in, uh, in, in factories basically most of them I mean for the the low social class, the the lower, the, well, probably the lower part of the middle class, uh, to go back uh, to unpaid labor. So I mean, when I think about nostalgia, I'm not trying to articulate that people are looking fondly back upon this time and trying to achieve this lifestyle. It's it's that the architecture of this time created and constructed a certain desire that was to be commodified 
to these families, to place themselves within, to envision themselves in, to seek an identity within the architecture that is constructed around them. To have this single-family home be embodied by the subject that inhabited it. I'm thinking of when I referenced before the how, the how the housewife today is is an archetype that is constantly embellished upon or reimagined or mystified. Even in um, Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, she was trying to unravel the narrative of the housewife in a lot of her colleagues at Smith College at the time. In 1942, I think, she did a survey of her fellow classmates trying to divulge what their lives were like living in this suburban culture, what their sex life was, what their house life was, what motherhood was, and all of these different facets that comprised together created the performativity of the housewife. Um, And there's a section in the survey that is just titled Home, and it talks about how many rooms are there, what are your daily chores, etc. And I think each of these bullet points that comprise of what that archetype does to perform its duty within that architecture show, shows just how much this typology has power over its subject. And so, so far we've been, we've been talking about gender in, um, independently from each other, I suppose, and how, how gender might have a, uh, might constitute a, an audience, a, a different audience in this creation of, of capitalist desire. Uh, um, and how uh, gender corresponds to a certain uh, role within this house, but you just you just brought up uh, you just brought up an aspect that we haven't talked about that's uh, extremely interesting for for that matter, which is the problem of sexu- sexuality and, and uh, that we already touched upon a little bit when we talked about heteronormativity. But you you created this uh, this timeline that we have in front of us uh, uh, where. Um, in addition of several, um, let's say, governmental uh, governmental decisions, like the, we talked about the Highway Act of uh, of the Eisenhower in, uh, administration in '56, but um, in, within this timeline, you also included quite a lot of elements that are that have to do with sexuality, and um, I think we should we should talk about that. I think the main question I was asking while constructing this timeline was how the broader collective narrative of domesticity and was often overlooking the psychological sexual undertones of family societal structures that did not fit within the heteronormative idea or desire that was being sold to the general public at the time. Um, all of these notions of home become incredibly suggestive and obviously all can't fit within an overarching normative ideal. So the, this timeline that you did actually uh, made me recall uh, the, the work of Beatrice Preciado 
that basically uh, consider what, what Deleuze called about Foucault, the society of control. I mean, this society that, that Foucault describes are at length and, and very in a very precise way. But um, Preciado does this thing that's extremely interesting, and she, she first renamed this society, and she, instead of society of control, she calls it uh, pharmaco-pornographic, so to explain it in very simple words and maybe too simple, I don't know, is, is the way of how the pharmaceutical industry uh, started to work within uh, capitalist logics after, after the war and, um, and how, how uh, a paradigmatic object like the contraceptive pill was um, maybe the embodying the paradigm of this uh, society which um, deals both with uh, this object that the drug is and uh, how this uh, drug is able to modify uh, actively the biology of a given body and even the sexuality of this body uh, uh, that is uh, taken voluntarily by the body who uh, uh, ingests it and how this uh, sexuality is also involved within uh, a larger um, uh, society of spectacle, to, to use Guy Debord's, uh, Guy Debord's concept. Uh, um, and so uh, the birth control, which obviously is a, is a very heteronormative uh, uh, object, which uh, Came came also within uh, within uh, feminist struggle, but there is there is a complexity, a cultural complexity to, to these objects that uh, is now uh, quite ubiquitous. That needs to be noted, and the way Preciado does it is, is very interesting. But she, she elaborates a very similar timeline than yours, and 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 I'm I'm actually interested in how you also included their, uh, this um, this research on uh, this scientific research on sexuality. Within within your own research, so can can you maybe tell us a bit more about that, please? Yeah, um, I think that bringing up the pill it it exemplifies how there are certain things within within the single family home that are stigmatized and cannot be cataloged in the basic archetypes within the home. Um, there are certain things that aren't accounted for and in the constructing of these homes, in the first blueprints of them, and what they may have expected their subjects to do. Um, there was other elements of this timeline that I was looking at in research of sexual behavior and certain Gallup polls that were taken in, in the early 60s, trying to evaluate developing sexuality of... American households and how these numbers can show performativities of the subjects that aren't accounted for simply within the nuclear family. It is not simply um, the housewife or simply the 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 father the or the husband. Um, they're all generating their own spaces and performances of themselves that that are constantly underwriting and disrupting the collective narrative. Well, and something I, I should add actually to that is the fact that uh, uh, 
I think the way we should consider the contraceptive pill is, is very much, uh, or any other drug for that matter, is very much as a design object, a very small one, admittedly. But uh, uh, I, I think we should, and, and I think uh, that's what Preciado is trying to do as well, is uh, we should think of the, the, any drug as a design object to the same uh, degrees and architecture is a, it is a design object. I think it's just a matter of scales that uh, differentiates them. But um, I don't know, what, what, what would you say about that? Yeah, I think I think that's an incredible point in talking about the pill and projecting this desire of of the heteronormative female to be able to express her sexuality through the fac- facilitating this pill. I mean, it's interesting and problematic at the same time in the sense that the pill itself can be as much of a commodified idea of an archi- of another archetype of a heteronormative female that can have a liberated sexual lifestyle mm-hmm. as much as the single family home can facilitate a heteronormative conservative uh, home life mm-hmm. um, but what what do these two desires provide and contradict um at, at this time and in the article that you gave me uh, that Beatrice wrote she mentions that in, in this time that the United States government spent the most money on sexual research um, than any other time in modern American history well it's a world history right right they, scientific research in sex sexuality and birth control um, yeah, than, than any other country, I think it was it. And um, I guess that's very prevalent in trying to see what are the counter narratives that exist uh, that are that are un- underwriting the collective narrative of do- domesticity, a heteronormative domesticity. Um, yeah, and I think th- something that Preciado is trying to to say as well is that. Um, the contraceptive pill considered by uh, an institution like a given government, for example, is is an instrument of control of the demographics as well, which is uh, which is something important. And and so you always have this association of of uh, capitalist logics of their corporations, and and we know now how their pharmaceutical industry is incredibly related to capitalist logics. That works hand hand in hand in with with governments that are interested in controlling their own demographics. So we we've been talking so far about um, uh, all this uh, research that you made. But something I should have said in the beginning is that you actually uh, position yourself as a designer and as a, uh, all those other mediums you use within within this uh, this research. So. Uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit of this work you've been doing to intervene within uh, uh, to to propose a kind of design critique of of those uh, of this uh, normativities we're talking about? Yeah, well, um, the beginning of my research actually started in Levittown, and I went and looked at some of the preliminary preliminary plans of the first two houses that were proposed for the town. And I took one of the houses that had an, 
a fir- just one single floor plan with a kitchen, a living room, and two bedrooms. And it was one incredibly simplistic, almost a to a T schematic diagram of a nuclear family compartmentalized and flattened into a house plan. And I slowly started to find moments of intervention that I could start to disrupt this layout and try to find intersections of where the performativity of these archetypes can can start to challenge one another. Um, I had one proposal where there's a water wall that's shared by a bathroom and a kitchen and the vanity sink and the kitchen sink were interconnected so you could open the mirror and open the spice cabinet above the kitchen sink and the vanity sink and look through. So there's this duality of the very private bathroom area of the vanity, like this this core nakedness to that program of that room in the house next to a very open um, kitchen space, uh, a day-to-day space. And they're sharing this this moment of interconnectivity um but also sharing an an object within the home to to rewrite its use um I, I do that with a lot of my work where I'm taking various domestic motifs of the time and trying to to question how they've been constantly reappropriated or envisioned and reframing their familiarity through a, a new lens almost in a sense clearing clearing them and what I mean by this is taking maybe an object or a space that is predominantly assigned as a female domain like a daughter's bedroom or a mother's vanity or a father's writing desk and challenging its presence in the room, challenging how it performs with the assigned subject that holds dominance over it. And it's through challenging these motifs that I can begin to disrupt these narrative structures of a collective heteronormative family structure if that makes sense Um, one of my writings beyond um, the design work that I was doing is constructing these proposed vignetted performances of various of these various archetypes within the nuclear family like mother and daughter husband and wife and placing an object between the interaction in which they can rotate around and develop a singular narrative in this proposed performance. So there's this performance that's called um, Correspondence, and the setting is in the daughter's room, 
and there's a diary on the desk. And this is all written as a proposal that is read and internalized by the subject that reads it as, as a piece. Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like a little poem. Yeah. yeah. It's, not, it's not meant to be performed. It's not meant to assume any particular ultimate uh, subject. It's just the title of these subjects that will carry out these... Mm -hmm roles in this singular performance that's proposed um, so in, in correspondence um, the daughter has a diary that she's writing in it, and the mother comes in as the daughter leaves and rips out the page and writes I love you on the, second, on the subsequent page and it's looking at how an object like a diary is I think is incredibly effeminate it, it, based on the, the timeline that I was looking at like of that time it's an object that uh, represents femininity um, in how intimate of an object it is with its owner but it can but in this performance it brings together two generations of women to correspond about a ver uh, their own innate desires a daughter of her of her own progress, and a mother of, um, and the mother of her own reflection of of the daughter's progress, but all encapsulated in this diary. Um, obviously, this piece is is to elaborate on the subjectivity of collective narratives and domesticity, and it's still. Um, accepts its failure to try and progress beyond these archetypes. But in addressing the archetypes, it's it's acknowledging how problematic they are by proposing a disruption and how they are re-envisioned in this performance. So, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an interpretation of what you're doing and you'll, you'll tell me if you think it's fair or not, but... We, we've been we've been throughout this conversation talking about how uh, something like architecture but once again we should and especially with the example of the diary you just gave and the example of the drug we talked before is like rather than architecture we should really talk about design and involved every kind of object within it as well so we've been talking about how the, all this designed uh, environment has tremendous consequences I mean tremendous uh, uh, purpose in uh, enact, enforcing the enactment of a certain amount of behavior and performativity and if I understand well what you're doing whether by uh, design or, or these uh, little uh, poems or uh, other things um, rather, than, rather than trying to destroy this power that design has you're basically re- directing it towards something else you're triggering the situation through design is that a correct assumption yeah and most of my practice of this of this uh, collection of research and, and design work it's mostly trying to find ways to take certain domestic motifs that that have been if I can say heteronormativized mm -hmm and try and unravel the narratives in which they've been upheld 
through normative structures, normative familial societal structures, and, and even the nuclear family is this very tight narrative that they have been understood. Motifs like, which I had aforementioned, the daughter's bedroom or the mo- the mother's vanity, and I'm I'm mostly actually focusing on mother daughter mm-hmm. binary dyads. Um, so it becomes more a female female intergener intergenerational relationship that I can examine in the single family home. Um, but aside from that, it's trying to find these moments of disruption. To, re, to, to rewrite and re-envision the collective narrative of domesticity um, or, or finding ways of, of queering these domestic motifs and objects, queering architecture, um, trying to find ways of breaking down the, the powers that, that that specific kind of architecture had on these subjects and thinking about ways that they may be unraveled. Um, how can these laws of a commodified suburban architecture on these subjects and how they've created them be challenged and how they're restructured? Well, I, I think this idea of, of querying architecture is... is can tr- trigger trigger uh, many many interesting uh, scenarios here because because when you were talking about the the Levitan plan the, the, this one house that you, you you looked at the plan and you looked at it in there in, in in detail how when you as an architect see this plan what you see is not architecture what you see is social constru- social structure right so yes. somehow based on this correspondence between uh, 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 between what we would assume is architecture but is in fact social construct, how when you modify architecturally uh, the plan, and the plan obviously standing for uh, design in general, how you can uh, disrupt, as uh, you like this word, uh, disrupt uh, this, uh, this normativity that was contained within it, right? So this it's very interesting how there's a there is a a correspondence that you you are totally embracing between between those two like that that's what that's what I find fascinating because uh, there would be another another scenario that I I would not I would not agree with but why not I mean it would be to 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 try to break this correspondence between architecture and social construction, but you you embrace this correspondence. You're just trying to disrupt the normativity that's contained within it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a lot of the plans, you you see the compartmentalization of all of the rooms equally facilitating the the segregation of each of the members within the family, um, both in gender and in age, almost. Um, like sim- very simple elements such as a closet become buffers between the bedroom of the mother and the father and the children mm-hmm. or um, a very long and narrow hallway um, or a bathroom that is wedged between two bedrooms 
Um, I think in many ways I have addressed these certain um, divisions, like architectonic divisions between the members of the family by either trying to propose maybe the removal of doors or the expanse of a closet that, that suddenly becomes a room the, where the, the closet becomes the room in which all, all members of the family can uh, be at most vulnerable when they dawn upon themselves what they wear or how they present themselves. Mm. Um, the closet being the queer space mm. of the family that can be shared. So beyond all of my design work and performance work, as well as research within this time period and what what post-World War II domesticity has shown to me through the archetypes that in many ways I have gotten to know and construct on a very personal level in the sense that I have taken this nuclear family and re-envisioned and translated it to my own use and how I wish to examine primarily intergenerational female mother-daughter dyads um, helps me find ways to see subjects navigate within an architecture that may deploy a power upon the subject's sexuality or psyche or somatic senses. Um, And it's trying to challenge as I keep saying, disruption, unraveling of this narrative that can begin to propose um, new ways of seeing the familiar, um, trying to find possibility within that. Because all these subjects are trying to navigate either with, against, in response to these types of architectures, um, and, and my own querying of these architectures won't, won't necessarily be enough, but it's a starting point to try and re-envision the ways that they can be perceived today, considering that perhaps there's not enough architectural program to facilitate the ways in which the subjects are performing in, in the mul- multitude of ways that they're redefining themselves or becoming more fluid in how they're defining how they are performing um, and perhaps that is the whole point of of queering in architecture in the sense that it constructs itself on the desires of the inhabitant versus the desires that it wished, wishes to construct for the inhabitant to navigate within and place themselves within. Well, I think that's a, that's a very good conclusion to our, to our conversation. So, uh, Olivia, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you much for your patience. No, 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 no worries. And uh, I think I speak, uh, I'm sure I speak for many to say that um, we'll be uh, very uh, interested in seeing where this uh, querying architecture manifesto would lead you uh, in the future. So good luck with this uh, future project in whichever uh, whichever medium it might, uh, it might take. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you.